This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Y'all want to fire it yeah. up? Yeah, man. I mean, Matt's gonna be gonna be leading, I guess. So see, uh, see how this garbage fire goes. Hey, now <laughs> you are in this garbage. You are in this garbage fire with me. So yep, I yep. am indeed the burning garbage. You're just holding the match. I'm I'm just the one just tossing it and then throwing a gallon of gasoline on top. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to a most special episode of the EDH RecCast. That's right, it is most special because I, Matt Morgan, am hosting it this week. We're giving Joey a little little time off, but Joey is here. He is the author of the Commander vs. series. We have Joey Schultz. It's the Commander Showdown series. What is this mutiny? But you put people versus... You know what? It's my intro. It's my week. (laughs) (laughs) It is what I say it is. That other voice in the background is my other co-host. You might know him from his new Superior Numbers article series. It is Dana Roche. Dana, thank you for being appreciative of my new intro. I am just delighted to see the inmates running the asylum. The inmates are definitely running the asylum this week. But this week we have a most exuberant episode, some enlightened topics. Gentlemen, what are we doing a special episode about? We're going to fight. Group, group hug. That's right. Fighting over group hug. That sounds very contradictory, but it is what we're doing. It is, <laughs> it is not inaccurate. We are going to have a debate this week, ladies and gentlemen, all you listeners far and wide. We're going to have a debate about the group hug deck type in Commander. So we have two co-hosts with two very differing opinions, and this week we're going to let them duke it out, if you will, talk about what they think of the archetype and its role in the format. Before we get to that, though, how are you guys doing? What's new? I'm I'm just really ready to give you guys all a great big hug because a group hug is the perfect opportunity to stab someone in the back. Hey, I am oiled up and ready to go, but you won't get a grip on me. I, <laughs> I don't even know where to take that. So <laughs> how about you, Matt? That. How are you doing? Have oh. you played any fun games, new cards, anything like that? I have not played a whole lot. Um, I sadly had to miss GP Denver uh, this past weekend. So that was kind of a bummer. I was really excited about getting up there and meeting some people. But 
Um, with the new GP season coming out next year, I know uh, I might have a chance to actually go to a few GPs. So uh, hopefully I'll get to make it up. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I fired up a new deck. I built my Saskia Exalted deck and got to play a few games this week. And I'm liking it so far. Saskia Exalted. I like it. Are you playing Hydra Omnivore? Am I playing which one? Hydra Omnivore, the one that I, hits the I table. I am. Yes. I am. That card is so good. That's one of the few non-exalted creatures I have in the deck. I really do love the idea of a Saskia deck that contains things like Hydra Omnivore. So when it hits one person, it hits everyone. And also Sower of Discord. So when you hit one person, it also hits someone else. And then also Bitter Feud. So when one person deals damage, it's actually doubled if it's against another person. I just like the idea of making combat almost impossibly hard to navigate. Whenever you deal one damage, it ends up becoming like two damage to this guy and eight damage to that guy and 16 damage to the table and stuff like that. I think it's really funny. I would say there, there are plenty of different math lessons. Some people like doubling season and uh, Cathar's Crusade. Some people like, you know, doubling damage and then Omnivore tricks. Yeah, uh, Omnivore has been really good in the deck and I'm running a bunch of extra combat step cards as well. So because Exalted double stack. So I think there were a couple of times last night, um, definitely with Omnivore, where I like swung with Omnivore for 12 and then cast, you know, like Seize a Day or something. And then like, the second swing of Omnivore was for like 16. So yeah, it, it's been an interesting deck. I like the fact that it's not completely commander-centric. Like, Sasuke is really, really useful, but if I don't get her in play, I can still do a lot of things. Whereas if you're playing Rafik Exalted, the deck tends to really revolve around Rafik. So I like that aspect of it as well. Um, the biggest problem is there's it gets pretty lean for Exalted creatures when you're trying to you know go 20 deep. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I could really use one more uh, core set or something that has half a dozen Exalted guys in it. Sure. Also, Bryce, she was the writer of the I think it was like a low market series on EDH Rec, and then she also yes, hosts the low the low market. Yeah, and then she also hosts the uh, Talking Atlas podcast. Um, she made a really great joke ages ago on Twitter that I've never forgotten. That uh, like I got a paper cut from my Saskia. Does that mean that I have another paper cut on my body somewhere else too? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's Saskia exactly. It's exactly how it works. Also does the double damage thing. I just I, I love it. I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to see the Saskia deck in action. I hope that it works, but not against me, because I'm going to be hugging you too much. We will see about that. I'm slippery. <laughs> Would Dana, Dana made sure he got super oily for this this episode? So I did. Half this we'll wrestling half meta- the, metaphor yeah. makes me uncomfortable. Well, Baby that, oil your problem. Is, is gone. The, the entire jar is empty. I am I'm ready. And he has KY just to you know get an extra like just, just in case on the back like on his back you know where he can dry out a little bit. I smell like the rock right now. <laughs> I, I objectively know nothing about wrestling. I know something about magic, though. Let's talk about magic. All right, fine. Well, if you if you insist. Uh, so we'll get to this debate then about group hug. So before we get going, um, let's define group hug as, a, as an archetype. What does group hug or group hug deck mean to you guys? Joey, how about you? I really, the, like, group hug is very simple in my mind. Like, the obvious overtones of group hug is that you're going to be benefiting the entire table in some way. You'll be using cards that like let everyone draw cards or give everyone lands or stuff like that. But really, I, I think that that's kind of just a disguise. To me, what group hug is, is a secret control strategy. And that's what makes it so much fun. Uh, group hug is something that is like letting everyone think one thing about what your deck is doing when you're actually doing something completely the opposite. And for my reference as well, I guess I should make a distinction between like there are group hug decks that are not trying to win the game. And that's not the type of group hug that I play. I really enjoy 
like you know, in my non-necromancy decks, the group hug that I like to do <laughs> is like very subversive in that way. I will help people out, but it secretly fits my agenda. So it's actually very, very sneaky. So that's what I like about group hug. Even when you're talking about group hug, you're talking about necromancy. Joy Schultz, it's everyone. It's the, the rare moments when I don't have necromancy in my decks. I, uh, I'm, I'm doing something else that's also very sneaky and underhanded. Sure. So I'm always going to be doing something that's uh, a little dubious. I, I get it. It's very demure of you. I get it. Uh, Dana, how do you define group hug? Um, I would say group hug is an archetype where your game plan is to put yourself in a position to win by providing resources to people who neither understand game mechanics nor, <laughs> nor oftentimes basic math. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the rhetoric this this week is going to be pretty strong if you couldn't tell so far. The gauntlet um, has been thrown. Yeah, we're in a mood to fight. The, there, there's going to be over under six mic, mic drops this episode. So we'll, awesome. we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. So... Now that we've loosely described uh, how my, my co-hosts approach group hug as an archetype, how they define it, I'm going to give them a chance to do some opening statements. I'm going to be the Anderson Cooper for the rest of this episode. I will moderate this debate quite elegantly and, and distinguishedly. I don't think that's a word, but Joey, I'm, I'm making that a word. So opening <laughs> statements, Dana, since you went second last time, uh, we'll let you open this debate with your opening statement about group hug. Well, my opening statement would be the group hug is is an archetype that is generally most effective when you're playing against people who are who are hyperbole aside not great at evaluating the board state. And oh. if you're playing people who aren't great at evaluating the board state, you probably don't need any kind of a specifically tuned deck to beat them. That's, that's it. That's that's fair. That's, I mean, that's my hypothesis. Your so so your hypothesis centers more around. Not so much the decks and what you're playing against, but the people you're playing against. Not so much uh, what what they what the player themselves are playing. I think I think most decks are designed to be effective based on what you do and how you interact with the board. And I think group hug is reliant on the players you're playing with being bad at some aspect of the game. All right, fair enough. That, that is aggressive. I would like to counter. I well, well, you know <laughs> I bet what? You would. You will both have a chance to give a rebuttal to each other's opening statements. But first, Joey, let's hear your opening statement, not your rebuttal. Okay. Well, group hug to me simply means that you are making yourself in some way a little too valuable for the table to kill. While a lot of decks are doing their thing, you're not necessarily giving too much away about your game plan. So, for example, a Ural deck might be suiting itself up to, like, smash people out of the game with commander damage right away, or, you know, like a Thrasios deck or something like that is going to be, you know, very transparently accruing, accruing, accruing tons of lands in play and stuff like that. Meanwhile, you as the group hug player are playing stuff that are kind of designed to keep you not looking like you're in first place, which means that a lot less of your strategy is revealed. And in some ways, you've also, like I mentioned, making yourself too valuable to kill. You're playing cards, frequently things like Rites of Flourishing, Temple Bell, Dictative Crucifix, that provide benefits for the entire table, which then makes people not want to kill you. And in that way, they'll be focused more on fighting each other, which then you're able to take advantage of. There are also a couple of different ways that you can do this. Uh, there are some decks that are much more hyper interested in providing resources to other players, like Zedru the Great Hearted, for example. One of the things that Zedru can do is like literally give good cards to their opponents, or something like Feldegriff can actually give creatures to opponents. 
And then there are also things like my preferred one is Kaneos and Tiro, which provides very subtle benefits to the entire the table. Everyone can either draw a card or play a land, but I do both. And that's really the secret for me is that even though your cards are you know, providing benefit for everyone and bonus at a really low rate for you, Rights of Flourishing does not cost you a whole lot, but it does give you, you know, a lot more resources over the course of a long game. So you're not really like hogging the spotlight, which means that people don't want to kill you as much. So you're accruing resources while hiding in the background, I guess is kind of how it looks. And people don't want to kill you because they're more interested in, you know, dealing with the Ural that's coming to attack them or the Rafik that's coming to attack them right away. And so they have to deal with those problems. So your enemies are kind of like turned against each other while you're slowly manipulating things in the back or at least waiting for the perfect time to strike. So would you say then, in contrast to Dana's point, where it's more about uh, playing with players who are are bad at threat assessment, your stance is more threat diversion and, and deflecting that attention to somebody else while you're secretly doing something else? Is that is that accurate? I I think that's a fair way to categorize it. There are different strategies within it. Uh, you know, things like. Zedro mentioned are a lot more overt. I prefer stuff that's a little more ephemeral. You know, I can make agreements. I can use my own, like my cards aren't necessarily the ones doing the politics. I'm not having players vote. I'm not having, I'm not putting vows on other creatures or something. So they have to attack, but can't attack me or things like that. So, but, but yes, I think that your categorization is a pretty good one. All right. Fair enough. Well, Dana, would you like to give a rebuttal to Joey's points on group hug? I absolutely would. Well, let's hear it then. So my rebuttal would be, in terms of, for example, providing valuable resources to the table to make you someone who isn't targeted because you're so useful, my response would be the fact that you're not actually providing anything useful, but you're, you're in fact, harming the, the board state by providing those resources. If I'm playing a deck that's properly built, I should have an appropriate amount of draw and ramp and fetches and, and removal and all these things I need. And... When you provide those to other people, number one, that makes the things I have in my deck less useful. And number two, when you scale things like that, the cards I have in my deck designed to give me those advantages become less useful. So a sign in blood or a read the bones or something, it's a really nice card to have when you get down to two or three and you play a creature and you want to get you know an extra card or two in your hand. Those are nice little small draw spells you would bake into your deck to get back in a position to make another move. When everyone's drawing two or three or four cards, the the last thing you want to draw out of your deck is that Knight's Whisper or that Sign in Blood. It actually renders advantages in your deck that you've built in less useful by virtue of providing so many of them. So like when you draw two cards, everyone else draws one, that's great. When you draw 12 cards, everyone else draws 11, that 12 card is way less useful. So by providing those resources for everyone, it makes your deck less useful. It doesn't actually help anyone. It actually hurts you kind of in the long run by sanding off the advantages built into your deck. In addition to that, it's not just providing you with additional resources. It's providing the people that you have to kill three times as many resources. So when Howling Mine comes down and you draw a card... That isn't you drawing a card and one other person drawing a card. It's you drawing a card and people you have to kill, three of them, drawing an answer or a problem at a rate three times that you are. So that's three answers. That's three problems they've drawn for every one you've drawn. So the group hug player isn't 
giving you resources to get ahead. He's actually enabling two other people in addition to maybe him or herself. He's enabling them a chance to kill you. He's speeding up the combo player. He's giving that Euro player that many more enchantments to put in his creatures. He's, he's making more problems than he's solving. So in a lot of ways, he's the biggest threat because he's made the two other threats even stronger. You're darn right, sister. That's that's fair. So, Joey, going back to Dana's opening statement, do you have any rebuttals for him? I know you you kind of worked a little bit into your opening statement. Focus on Dana well, himself, and what 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 would you say about Dana's opening statement? I, I actually I can't like the only thing that I'm thinking of right now is Dana's categorization there of your opponent is drawing three cards. I actually, I love that. That's one of my favorite aspects of Dana's mentality when it comes to group hug, because that that's like, he's not wrong. Uh, like you, in a game of commander, you don't have a single opponent at 20 life. You have three opponents at 40, but a cool way to look at it is also that you have like a single opponent at 120 combined life. And what I like so much about group hug, and, and Dana's correct to note that like we're actually like, yes, while it looks pretty, if people are maybe focused a little too inward, if they focus a bit more outward, then they can notice that like the, the odds are not being increased in their favor for those reasons. So, so he is right that like we are probably more harmful in group hug than uh, we necessarily appear if people have their focus misdirected. But that's precisely what I like so much about group hug. In his opening statement, Dana mentioned that it was, you know, a, a thing that takes advantage of the fact that uh, maybe folks aren't paying proper attention. And I think that's exactly what I like so much about it. That's why I said it was like a, a sneaky control deck. I am trying to make sure that my single opponent is working against themselves. If, if that makes any sense. I do view the rest of the board, like my Kaneos and Tiro, that's a blacklist deck. But in my opinion, it's actually my mono black deck. Like I'm Littlefinger from Game of Thrones, but everyone thinks that I'm Podrick Payne from Game of Thrones. Everyone thinks that I'm doing something nice if I've played my cards right. But I am actually secretly just in it to win. And my, my attitude towards the game is that everyone is my enemy and I need to find the ways for them to not think of me as their enemy, which is what makes it so exciting to play. So if there are players like Dana on the battlefield, you know, if, if he's at the table and he's like, hey, Joey's causing a bunch of problems for my collective enemy, he's right. I'm just hoping that other people will still consider him to be more of an enemy because he's got so much more on the board than I do because I frequently have very little on the board myself because I like to, you know, play it, as I mentioned, like sort of as a control strategy. So I, I do agree with Dana in that respect. I just, I like that I'm being, that I'm able to take advantage of those things. So Joey, I, I don't know if you know how to debate properly because <laughs> how many times, four times, I think it was, you said Dana's right or you agree with Dana. So you're supposed Joey's, to say he's wrong. In Joey's defense, I am. <laughs> well, Here, that's here's the what end of I've the debate, actually learned, gentlemen. Here's what I've learned in debate: it, like saying that the other person's wrong is not actually useful. Like Dana has pretty clear values set up, and I think that the group hug like strategy just is better fitting to the values that he has. I don't think that he's necessarily bringing incorrect logic to the table. I'm just taking better advantage of that logic. Um, so that's my debate style. So you're disagreeing by agreeing. Well, and one thing I should note, there's a couple different ways to, like, we've talked about group hug and, and what it means, but sometimes you're playing group hug because it's like the last game of the night and and nobody cares and you're like, oh, screw it, let's let a couple of, 
you know, how long minds get into play and let's just see what happens. Like that's a whole different thing. In that case, you're like, you're intentionally wanting to see what chaos happens and that's fine. That's a, that's a different type of group hug though. I think, I think we're talking about using group hug where your intent is to actually win. Yes. Versus like, let's just, th- let's throw a live grenade in the room and see what happens. Yes. I don't, I, I can't say that I necessarily condone people who just want to do crazy stuff to the game. Uh, like just cause they just want to give everything to other players with no intention of actually like letting themselves have a path to victory. For me, group hug is very much the opposite. It, like all of these treasures, all these presents that I'm giving you are all Trojan horses. You just don't realize it until it's too late. That's very much my particular strategy. It's very, very sneaky. I'm not a good person. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do like the distinction that you guys have set up and, and are agreeing with. Uh, the intent of the deck very, very much matters. That is one thing I think all three of us are going to agree on. Dana, obviously, you don't like group hug. Joey, obviously, you do. Me being Switzerland, I'm going to agree with both of you at the same time. <laughs> well, and and also we should note that like within that framework, there's also like. like even with group hug decks that are planning to win, there are different strategies of doing that. Some people will do like the Zedru plan and give like a bunch of stuff to their opponents and hopefully use that to their advantage as well. But other people will do the exact opposite and they'll make themselves very valuable to the table because they restrain the person in the lead instead, which means that the rest of the table doesn't want to get rid of them because they are the ones keeping the game looking like it's fair rather than letting one person run away with it. So there are also different strategies therein as well. Yep, I, I couldn't agree with all the points provided so far. So one thing that, that I will ask, since we've kind of established the ground floor, what is group hug? What do you guys think about it? Some of you know the finer points. Uh, Joey, I'm going to ask you, why should you play group hug then? I think that it's one of the most awesome deck building challenges that I've ever had. The what what I learned very very quickly is that your best politics in a group hug deck are not actually things like voting cards or vows or friend or foe cards things like that. The best politics are actually your removal spells. When I took a look through my Kaneos and Tiro deck, I found that about twenty cards were some form of removal spell or counter spell or just instant instant speed interaction. So I've got things like Swan Song, Chaos Warp, Beast Within, Arcane Denial, uh, Wild Ricochet. I I want to have a lot of quick responses to things because those are excellent bargaining chips if someone's attacking another player then your swords to plowshares can be used as a favor to the person being attacked or as a favor to the person doing the attacking to get a blocker out of their way to help kill someone like that is power so first of all you like have a lot of power if you are holding that many spells you have a way above average number of like interaction in the game but that also means that it becomes a huge challenge because a lot of those answers don't necessarily mean win conditions. So you have to be exceptionally, exceptionally creative with your win conditions. And that's actually what I really liked about the original Kaneos and Tiro deck. In that deck, it came with a whole bunch of crazy win conditions that if you're not paying attention, you might not recognize them as win conditions. So the Stalwart Unity Kaneos and Tiro deck came with things like Progenitor Mimic and Psychosis Crawler and Rubble Hulk and Keening Stone and Treacherous Terrain and Hoofprints of the Stag. Those are all over the place. Some of them are like token makers like Hoofprints of the Stag and Progenitor Mimic, but others are things like Psychosis Crawler, which is slowly making your opponents lose life as you draw more cards over the course of the game. But then there's also Keening Stone, which is a mill rock. And it costs so much mana, but it is an actual way to win the game because if you are controlling the board with all those cool removal spells and all those bargaining chips, then you are able to just use that as a very quick, this is your single card that's going to win you the game over the course of several turns while you're controlling that board. And and that's really what has been so much fun for me. I 
as a group hug player, I have had to study not only the way that my friends play commander, but also the way that I play commander. I have intentionally built the deck to look non-threatening, and I also keep recreating the deck with different win conditions to keep people on their toes. No one can ever know what it is that I'm planning, and every game action constantly leads me to have to reevaluate what my victory path will be. A lot of my favorite win conditions are things like Insurrection or Reigns of Power, which take control of other people's creatures so that then I can kill them with them. But if that doesn't work, I've got to have a backup plan and ready. I've got to have something like a Keening Stone as backup in case there aren't creatures on the board for me to take advantage of. I can't always rely on using my opponent's weight against them. Or sometimes I can. I can use things like the Rubble Hulk because the game has gone really long. Or I can use things like Treacherous Terrain because I've given my opponent so many lands and now I'm punishing them with them. Like So that's what is so much fun about Group Hug to me is that it's a very creative challenge that forces you to completely rethink the way that you play the game because you're using your opponents as a resource, not just your own cards as a resource. I'm going to be honest, Joey. The needle was, you know, ticking back and forth so far this episode. Uh, You said some things that sound like you're encouraging people to play politics. Therefore, (laughs) I'm leaning a little more towards Dana after that statement. Uh, Just me not liking the politics end of, of the game, how it can... Well, it mostly foils me because I'm not good at politics. If I may rebuttal against the uh, (laughs) the moderator. (laughs) The moderator moderator is completely neutral, just for the record. If if I may clarify, I think since since I mentioned so many of your best political tools, like our, our instant speed interaction... I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that the deck, like your level of political interaction is not necessarily different from another person holding a Putrefy. Uh, So like I've got a Chaos Warp and a Beast Within and a Naya Charm and a Swan Song and like an Insidious Will. So I'm holding a lot of different answers. But the way that I use them is going to be effectively the same way that someone might use a Putrefy. They might only use it if they themselves come under attack and they'll you know, use it to destroy a creature that's coming at them. But sometimes they'll use it for the good of the board if one person is pulling too far ahead as well. So like any instant speed interaction inherently is infused with a level of political gameplay because of the nature of the multiplayer format already. I'm just happening to run a higher density of it, but that doesn't mean that the way that I'm using my instant speed interaction is necessarily different than the way that other people are. Um, so group hug is, again, very disguised in that way. Okay. So I'd like to I, clarify that. I can let the needle move back more towards center after that, so... Yay. But then, now Dana, we, we gave Joey a little soapbox moment there. <laughs> All right. Dana, yeah, I've got a lot of, I, I, I talk a lot. <laughs> uh, we know, and we love you for it. <laughs> but we are going to give Dana a chance to, to maybe pitch, why should you not play group hug? You know, Joey convinced me. I'm good. Oh, well, in that he case. Swung, he saw me around. No. Okay. Oh, you, the episode you're is You're being done. sneaky. You're I'll trying to use my next style week. of debating by agreeing exactly. to disagree. Oh, that's sneaky. So, the first thing that pops to mind is group hug decks, particularly if you face one regularly, encourages both poor play and poor deck building. Now, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but like when you were going against a a really um, hard into the hug group hug deck that's you know running multiple extra card draw effects and ramp effects outside of you know maybe a a deep combo deck, just running a bunch of craw worms is one of the best things you can have, like just drawing a fistful of six or seven mana beaters is what you want to do. You're rewarded for building a deck with a really high curve with a bunch of like expensive, strong beater creatures. You're rewarded for not worrying about having 
some small draw spells to encourage you into bigger draw spells. You're rewarded for not having to worry about ramp. You're rewarded for not having to worry about running too many removal spells because odds are you'll draw down to one. It just rewards you for building kind of the the most greedy, non-interactive deck possible because the Hugs deck is going to kind of paper over a lot of the flaws you've built in. So that's one real problem I have is, is like I mentioned before, that Knight's Whisper card becomes irrelevant um, for the most part. When you're playing against Hugs, it's kind of the same thing the other direction. Not running the Knight's Whisper card, you're, you're rewarded for that playing against a Hugs deck frequently. So, so that's one reason I don't like it is because I think it rewards people for poor deck building and it penalizes people for, for good deck building for the most part. I think you can extend that to play as well. It rewards people maybe for poor play because you don't have to maximize the things you're doing. You don't have to worry about being efficient or paying real close or pay real close attention to maybe the mana you tap or the sequence in which you put cards into play or the sequence in which you cast spells. You have so much room to breathe because oftentimes you have so much mana available and so many cards in hand. You can be sloppy. And so that also is something that I, I have a real problem with group hug. I think it just rewards a lot of negative play and negative deck building. And, you know, when you practice bad habits or you, you know, build with bad habits, that extends out to situations where you're not in um, a game where group hug can paper over those things. So I, I feel like group hug decks are generally disruptive in a lot of ways to how people traditionally want to play commander. Even if you're you know, in a casual environment, I'm not talking about like CDH level stuff, even in a relatively casual 75% environment, I think it's really disruptive in how it rewards poor deck building and kind of penalizes strong deck building. And I think you can extend that even beyond that to maybe even things like politics. Because I mean, politics, even if you don't love it, um, it is to a degree part of almost every EDH interaction. Maybe not to the point you sometimes see on, you know, YouTube videos where people like make full on deals and make suboptimal plays with each other over the course of, you know, six or eight turns because they've made some kind of a handshake agreement. It doesn't have to go that far, but like there, there is an element of politics where people might team up to hit the person in the lead, make a temporary alliance for two turns to get the board state back to something like that resembles neutrality. You know, it also kind of screws with that a little bit because, it affects, it makes people, their eyes get big with greed and then they start making bad decisions, politically speaking, about who's in the lead. And maybe that's their own fault, but it's really frustrating to be at a table where people's greed or misunderstanding of just how resource allocation works is affecting your ability to play. So like your ability to make optimal plays or make, or, or play good magic or make, or make moves that get you to the win are affected by other people playing poorly because their eyes are on that howling mind drawing them an extra card. Am I allowed to respond? Uh, well, I was going to respond. Excuse <laughs> okay, you. I'm sorry. Let the moderator moderate, kind <laughs> sir. But I was going to say that I, I think Dana brought up a really good point that I've also noticed in, in games, maybe not really exclusively to group hug decks, but more, you know, decks just designed to affect the whole table in, in any way. Uh, they do have a tendency to put those that person, you know, just by virtue of the deck in first place. Uh, they they move down, you know, a little bit lower on the totem pole. And by contrast, the person that you know might have the weakest deck, they do get elevated 
to uh, you know to some degree as well. I think that's something very valid to point out. Not just like I said, not just for group hug decks, but for a lot of decks that kind of have a, a effect on the table at large, not just on their own game plan on their own board state. And I think it kind of goes back to uh, one thing that I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast before is resource management versus resource accumulation. Whereas these group hug decks, they're all about accumulating resources, not just for yourself, but for you know the entire table. So it kind of has a, a, a way of evening out the playing field, no matter what your deck is. It's a, a, a equalizer rule, if you will. I wonder if, you know, Joey, you maybe noticed that, and maybe that is kind of that, the, maybe that's the appeal that you have towards group hug decks is it does have that type of effect on the table. That That is precisely it. I, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that a less optimized deck is brought up and a more optimized deck is brought down. If that's the effect that I'm having on the table when I play group hug, it does destabilize things, but I don't think that those are necessarily negatives. I am sympathetic to the idea that it's encouraging bad deck building, but that is, I think, only true if they are winning when I play group hug. Um, that their badly built deck is still allowing them to win, and my goal is to make sure that they don't. That they think that they're doing really well, and then it turns out I was using them for my own purposes all along. So I, I hope that it's not having an effect on the table, that it's encouraging people to, to play uh, or build badly, outside of the fact that I want them to play in ways that they think are useful to their strategy, but end up actually being useful to mine. And as I think the more that people, like if they are playing and they think that they're winning, they think they're winning, and then they lose, if that continues to happen several times, that then they'll be forced to reevaluate their strategy, which I hope leads to a learning experience. But it's also really the point that I want to bring up is that as the pilot of the group hug deck, even if it may be, well, I guess like I should say that it is again an extreme deck building challenge for me. I am forced because my cards are helping other people out as well as myself. I am hyper forced to become incredibly aware of my meta at all times. And I have to keep the biggest eye on the game while my opponents maybe have the luxury of being able to tap whatever mana they want and this and that, and they don't have to pay too much attention because of the extra resources that I'm providing, I have to be exceptionally measured with the resources that I'm using because I can't use all of my removal spells on this one particular thing. I can't restrain that guy for too long. I maybe have to embrace the fact that that person's ahead to get rid of a different problem and then turn it all on its head. Um, And that becomes an exceptionally fun challenge for me. And I think that makes me a better person, a a better, not better, a better player. Um, I've established that I'm a terrible person, Um, but it makes me a better player. (laughs) Yeah, you you can't change Uh, our minds on you being a a good person or not. Right. So I just think that that particular challenge makes me a more inventive and creative player. And, and that's what I like. There's a problem solving dynamic, at least on my side of the table. And I hope that it actually does, even though it maybe looks like it encourages poor play on the other side, that it does encourage, you know, if someone continues to win, like that pressure forces other folks to change as well. And that's what I always enjoy about Commander is that those those things will like, you know, th- those forces will constantly ebb back and forth. There, there's a tide going in and out when one player is winning more then other people will change and then we'll start to win more. Like that's an evolutionary helix that is fun to observe about the game. Well, what, one thing I will I will rebut here, Joey, is you made the point about maybe it's it's a good thing to lift up the, you know, maybe lower tuned level of decks and maybe that's okay. I understand what you're saying, but but my response to that would be like, if I think of um, Magic, the DDH game, I'll use bowling for an example. And I'm going to be bowling against four other people. And I know, okay, I need to figure out 
what's you know what's my approach what's the best way to, to throw the ball how can i you know what's the best angle to impact the pins i practice for x amount of time i get my technique down just fine and we step up to play that game to to, to bowl that match and i'm confident in my abilities based on my preparation that i can win that and then we're told by the way guys these, these dudes didn't practice, so we're playing with the bumpers up. That's how I feel. Uh, that's what group hug feels like to me. I've practiced and worked on everything, and we've been told we're playing with the bumpers up. That's fair. And one thing I think... That's not fair. I <laughs> Hold up. Hold up, Mr. <laughs> Joseph. Can't say that's fair. That's not fair. I, I, I think one thing, just hearing both of you guys kind of talk everything through, is uh, it's largely playgroup dependent. It sounds like... Joey, and I know this just because of our conversations, your playgroup isn't near as open and, and wide-spanning as Dana's is. I know, Dana, you play in you know a lot of mm. uh, leagues and stuff like that, so you're playing with a lot more strangers, people maybe that don't have the same experience you do, whereas Joey, yours is a little more even playing field as far as you know skill goes. So I think that maybe maybe the type of players that you guys are playing with has a pretty big influence on on how you guys approach group hug as, as an archetype itself. Do you guys think that's fair at all? I think that you're just using this as an excuse to say that Dana is secretly a better player than I am. But you, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. You, you hid that insult in that comment very well. And I mean, and it's true, but it's probably not, <laughs> well, it's probably not necessarily germane to this conversation. <laughs> no, I, I think that's more of, you know, Joe, you, all, all the people in your playgroup, you guys are all at the same playing skill. You guys have taken time to develop. So you guys are a little bit better at threat assessment rather than the average Joe that, you know, Dana might sit down with at the shop. Uh, the kid who, you know, maybe hasn't been playing that long, hasn't had a chance to pick up all the lessons that you and your playgroup, Joey, have had a chance to. So, I mean, you mentioned a couple times that in your group hug deck, you have to change your win conditions every now and then because people start to pick up on how you're winning lately with the same deck. Mm-hmm. I think that just shows that maybe your playgroup is a little more elevated over the average person in Dana's playgroup just because of the fact that Dana has those random people who who don't know how to interact with unknown decks near as much as you do in your play group. That's more what I was getting. I wasn't saying who's the better player because we all know I'm the best player. So second, <laughs> if you're not first, you're last. Okay. You've walked it back. Excellently. Very, very expertly done. You're welcome. I, I was on the debate team in high school for a semester. You might say I'm an expert at moderating, but anyways, we're going to move on past this. Uh, that was a really good discussion. I really enjoyed hearing your guys's, Opinions a little more worked out than what we've gotten, you know, a chance to do in the past. But we are going to move on to head to head this week. I have a very spicy one. It is very not group hug, actually. Uh, you might say it's the opposite. So we're going to look at land destruction decks specifically. Uh, you might oh. notice right next to group hug on the themes page on EDH Rec, you have land destruction. So what do you guys think is played in a higher percentage of land destruction decks between rolling terrain? And one of my favorite cards, Price of Glory. And I w- there are a little more unknown cards, so I will read them out for you. So Rolling Terrain is a sorcery for two and two red. Uh, destroy target land, then Rolling Terrain deals damage to that land's controller equal to the number of lands in that player's graveyard versus Price of Glory, which is an enchantment for two and a red. And it reads, whenever a player taps a land for mana during another player's turn, destroy that land. Which do you guys think is played at a higher percentage in land destruction decks between rolling terrain and price of glory? If we guess it right, do we win the debate? No. We have another second half. That would <laughs> that cut everything too short. Uh, 
I I like Price of Glory just because it's continual. So I'm going to guess that one. Okay. Dana, what do you think? Man, I would I mean, if we're just talking like overall deck density, I was I would probably guess Price of Glory because I think it shows up in a lot of decks as kind of a deterrent to people casting counter spells. But if we're just talking land destruction decks, ugh, if you're just talking land destruction decks, I'm going to guess Rolling Terrain. All right. Well, Dana, you are correct for this segment of the episode. Oh. Rolling Terrain comes in at 49% of it's land destruction. It's such a familiar decks. feeling tonight. It, well, we'll, we'll sure, get to sure. that. Um, but yes, Price of Glory only shows up in 48%. So it's only a 1% difference separating the two. That makes me feel better. But yes, Price of Glory is one of my favorite equalizers to make everybody play fair. Or they have to pay a price, which is the Price of Glory. Dana, what's your head-to-head this week? My head-to-head are is uh, is two very similar group hug cards. And one I've mentioned already, that's Howling Mine. It is a two-mana artifact. At the beginning of each player's draw step, if Hollow Mine is untapped, that player draws an additional card. The second one would be Temple Bell, which is also an artifact, but it costs three to tap, and you can tap Temple Bell. Each player draws a card. So Temple Bell is, is kind of a fixed Hollow Mine in that you don't suffer the problem in a group hug deck of playing Hollow Mine and having somebody draw a card and then immediately disenchant it. So no one else can take advantage of it. Temple Bell, everyone simultaneously draws that card, and you can control when it happens. So in Group Hug decks, which sees more play, Howling Mine or Temple Bell? I know the answer to this, so I'm going to let Joey guess because I actually was looking at Group Hug cards for my own head-to-head. As an expert in my field, I also happen to know the answer, oh, you and do. that All answer right. is Howling Mine. And Joey is correct. I, I know it is Howling Mine. Howling Mine is in more decks. It's also in more decks overall. Um, actually, I was going to guess Temple Bell going in. in, in I, I was going to guess Howling Mine is in more group hug decks and Temple Bell is in more decks overall because I think it's been in more precons. But Howling mm-hmm. Mine has the lead on both of those. Mm. Yeah. I, I think, yep. I think yep. Temple Bell is really only better if you're doing like Mind Over Matter combo or anything like that to tap and untap. That's the only time I really think that Temple Bell should... If that's what you're going for is drawing a bunch of cards, that's the only time you really should play Temple Bell over Howling Mine. That Mind Over Matter combo was disgusting. It's so fun. That was one of my win conditions in Narset when I had that deck together. For folks who don't know, Mind Over Matter allows you to discard a card to untap something. So you'll tap Temple Bell, everyone draws a card, then you'll discard the card you drew to untap it, and then you'll keep doing that. But you'll like also discard stuff that won't let you mill out. So then your opponents draw their entire decks while you don't mill out, and it's just disgusting. Yeah, or I ran uh, Elixir of Immortality was uh, an anti-mill piece that I, I ran in that deck. So there are all sorts of fun things that you can do with uh, Temple Bell. But yeah, but good, good head-to-head, even though... You know, we all knew it already. So nice try, Dana. You did not win that section. <laughs> you you guys have been, your preparation has screwed me. I was not expecting you guys both to have done all your homework. I am nothing but professional when it comes to debates. And of course, I, I, I will debate that, sir. Okay. Well, you know what, sir? I will debate your head to head pick. Let's hear it. Mine is also very classic for group hug. Uh, one of the things that you frequently have to rely upon in group hug is not just the word of your opponents. Oh yeah, I'm not going to attack you next turn. Sometimes you need to enforce that. So which sees more play overall, not necessarily just in group hug strategies, but which sees more play the classic enchantments propaganda or ghostly prison? 
One of them is blue, one of them is white, but they are both three mana enchantments that force your opponents to pay attacks of two generic mana to attack you per creature. I am hmm. going to guess propaganda because I know f- for a fact it was in that uh, Nekusar deck back in 2013. Um, and I don't think Ghostly Prison's ever been in a Commander Precon. Also, until it got reprinted you know, last year or something, it was like five or six bucks. Although I think propaganda has now risen up close to that. So I'm going to go with propaganda just because it's been more readily available. And at least until recently, it was cheaper. I can inform for you that Ghostly Prison has been in a Commander product. It was in both Commander 2011 and 2016. Ah, okay. Well, there we go. Well, I, even besides that point of being in the pre-cons, I'm going to go with Ghostly Prison beca- just because of the fact that uh, you get a lot more Enchantress-style decks in green-white. Not until recently with uh, the Enchantress pre-con this year did we have a really good Bant Enchantress-style you know, style deck to, to lean on. Um, so I think just the fact that there's so many green-white Enchantment Matters decks, uh, I think Ghostly Prison is going to get the bump over Propaganda because uh, they didn't have blue until recently. All very well logic but you are wrong. Uh, so Ghostly Prison is showing up in 23,722 decks total, and Propaganda is showing up in 25,052 oh. decks. Yeah. So pretty slim margins, about a little over 1,000 uh, difference between them. Uh, and that is just decks overall. Uh, but I do like, I mean, they're both really good cards, and I run them both, and I like making sure that people can't hit me when I'm just trying to give them a nice big hug. You know, one thing I need to bear in mind for these, um, particularly talking about commander cards that were in pre-cons, is I opened up a ton of that Nekizar deck because at the time it had Trinity Nemesis in it that was going for more than the cost of the deck. So I just remember seeing a ton of those propagandas because I probably opened a dozen of those decks. Just because I happen to have a dozen of them on my desk at one point in time doesn't mean it was a more common card. In this case, I wound up being, wound up being right, but I think that keeps throwing me off because I keep thinking, oh, I've seen that propaganda everywhere. Nope, you just saw it all over your desk. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dana, you had a, a pretty good uh, head-to-head pick, though, even though we both kind of knew it. So what we're going to do next as we move on with this episode is we're going to go down some of the, the top-played cards in group hug decks, kind of talk about why they you know would get played in group hug decks, not whether they should or shouldn't, we're, we're moving on past that, but why these decks, and some of them are going to be pretty obvious, but yeah, we're going to talk about the top cards and top commanders for group hug decks. Are you guys ready to move on? Yes, indeed. Yep. Perfect. Well, if we're going to go to the signature card section of the group hugs theme, if you go to the website, you will see that the number one signature card is Rights of Flourishing. We've talked about this card a little bit already, but Rights of Flourishing is an enchantment for two and a green that reads, at the beginning of each player's draw step, that player draws an additional card, and each player may play an additional land on each of their turns. Joey, since you are the, you know, pro group hug uh, constituent on this podcast, why are people playing it even though it should be fairly obvious? That's basically it. It is very obvious. This gives you, over the course of several turns, a lot of advantage for a very small investment, uh, you know, Phyrexian Arena, for three mana, you're going to get to draw an extra card per turn, and it's just you, but you'll also sacrifice a life every time. Not necessarily a big problem, but Rites of Flourishing also gives you access to more land drops. 
And that's one of the things that's really essential to group hug because, as I mentioned at the top, it's that this is actually kind of a control strategy. And the way that you'll be beating your opponents is by having more resources than they do. So even though this looks like it's giving resources equally to people, you are taking better advantage of it because you've tuned your deck to do so. For example, Rites of Flourishing, everyone's going to draw an extra card and maybe they'll get an extra land, but if they aren't necessarily built they haven't built their deck to take advantage of those extra land drops. You, with all of your bounce lands in your deck, will be able to take advantage of all those lands drops, which means that you're going to, over several turns, accrue a greater amount of that resource. And that's what makes it so much fun. Sure. Yeah, Dana, what do you what do you think about Rights of Flourishing? Well, I think the advantage Rights of Flourishing has, and I think this is true of most of these cards in this list, is there are group hug cards that work both in kind of the thing Joey's talking about where you're including the cards that appear to provide everyone with the same resources, but you're hopefully gaining asymmetrical advantage. Like he mentioned, hopefully you're gaining more advantage than everybody else is. It works in that kind of a deck, but it also works in the, hey guys, let's just have some fun and draw a bunch of cards kind of group hug decks where the person has no intention of winning. They just want to kind of sow a little bit of chaos or let everyone just do crazy things for that one game a week. And all these decks kind of flex and all these cards flex into both of those decks. They work in decks where you're trying to do something kind of underhanded, and they work in decks where you're just trying to see people play crazy mana and draw crazy cards. I would argue that those are the same thing. We've just tricked you into thinking that sometimes <laughs> we're crazy instead of being underhanded. I don't think that's true. Joey, I'm, your, your, your black side is coming out very much. The, the black mana that you like to tap and usually resurrect creatures we know. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's, I, I told you straight up, my Kaneo's Interior deck is a mono black deck. That's that's fair. So one thing we're going to move on to next, uh, we're just going to go over this entire kind of category of, of your mine effects, your Howling Mine, Temple Bell, Dictative Crucifix, even go down to uh, Kami of the Crescent Moon. All these cards will let people uh, draw an extra card during uh, their draw step. What do you guys think? Why would people be playing this in-group hug decks? Why are they so central be- to the strategy? Because you'll notice there's four or five of these in the, in the signature card section alone that just draw cards. Why are they so important to group hug decks? It again goes to the fact that we're a control deck. Uh, an aggressive deck doesn't need to draw a ton of cards. It just needs to land a big threat and then kill people with it. And then the game's over. Uh, an increased amount of cards in hand inef- inevitably is going to like benefit the person who has the long game answers because they'll have it's kind of that classic uh, control mirror thought experiment, I guess, where if both players were to completely flip over their decks and then just match card for card, who wins in, in that? And and that's kind of what you're manifesting here with Howling Mine and Temple Bell and Dictator Crucifix and all this stuff. You're If you're each drawing an equal number of cards, the deck that has the most answers is hopefully going to win it. And as I mentioned before, my group hug deck actually has a whole ton of answers. So the, the threat ratio that they've got in their deck is already answered, and I just need to have one good threat that they aren't able to answer that will then uh, wipe that out. And so it's kind of a, a method of flipping over the decks and then proving that I've got more resources to deal with the stuff that they've got. But that only works if it goes over a very long period of the game, which is why we run these. Because, I mean, not not every card that you play can be Ristic Study. There's only one Ristic Study. You have to have a bunch of cards that aren't going to use up all of your mana. You can't Sphinx's Revelation or Stroke of Genius with every time that you want to draw a bunch of cards, you got to pay a tiny investment to get very slow accruals, and, and it allows you to do that matchup of resources and inevitably let the game steer towards the control deck that you happen to be. That's fair. Dana, do you have any thoughts on on why these are showing up so popular? 
Um, I think they are all really simple ways to convince the table we're all having fun. You know, the Holy Mind, Dictate, <laughs> Temple Bell. Well, and, and I, I, I sound sarcastic when I say that, and I am at least in part, but like... A little tongue-in-cheek, yes. But, but also, if you are playing that deck where you genuinely are looking to have everyone do something just goofy if you're just trying to play that game, and people like drawing cards. It, it's simple, it's clean, and almost, no one's ever been like, oh, I, can't make, I can't believe you made me draw extra cards. Like, I'll the Nekis are... People always want to draw more cards, and they always want to have more mana. Those are like the two most simple things, for the most part, you can do for somebody else that they would enjoy doing. So they're they're just easy ways to get that effect versus something like further on the list, you see Braids Conjure Adept, where everyone can play a free thing. You're getting ahead um, of us, getting ahead of everyone, but continue. Well, <laughs> but that's the first one that kind of breaks from this, because when you look at Braids, that seems fun but it's very apparent early on when someone plays braids and their their deck is built around abusing that ability you know you've played your you know four drop and they drop that eldrazi 12 drop things become much less fun and it becomes much more difficult to hide what you're trying to do than it does when you're destroying extra cards or just just making extra mana sure so so you think it's a little more covert than uh some of the other strategies on this list might might be apparent to yeah, for sure. I, I think another thing that I should probably point out, especially with the, the things that let everyone draw, draw a bunch of cards, um, the number of win conditions that I have in my particular group hug deck is actually very small compared to a lot of other decks. Dana, you built a Saskia deck. Basically, every creature in that deck is going to be capable of killing your opponents. I and my group hug deck have, like, compared, since I'm running so many answers, I had to make cuts somewhere, which means I have very few ways to actually close out the game. And those ways have to be diverse. I can run Insurrection and Reigns of Power, but then I also end up running other things like a uh, a Selfless Squire is a win condition technically, or a Deflecting Palm. Um, Treacherous Terrain is an example, and that attacks the game from a completely different angle. And I don't have a ton of those, so you have to draw a bunch of cards to actually find one of them. Uh, because your opponents are going to be drawing a ton of win conditions on their own, and you've got to find yours so that you can actually close that game out once you've established control. Yeah, you can't always rely on like the table flip as a way to win the game um, in group hug, where everyone's just so fed up they just send the cards flying. Like that's obviously your backup plan in group hug, um, but that can't be your only win condition. Seems pretty aggressive again. I like it. <laughs> so we're going to move on from all the card drawing effects, and we're going to go on to a different category um, with ramp and. and you know, mana efficiency. So we're going to go to cards like Collective Voyage, which is that Join Forces card where people can pay X and then search, you know, for the total X that every player chipped into uh, to look out, grab lands, and put them on the battlefield. The same thing... Uh, Template Discovery? There, yes. Ken, you know what to do here. In, this, in the same way, we have Tempt with Discovery, which is a tempting offer card uh, where the player casting is going to get to, you know, find a land to put on the battlefield. But for every opponent, that person's going to get to find another one because the opponents have a chance to grab a basic of their own. So uh, what do you guys think about those cards? And then we also have stuff like Dictative Karametra, which is a mana doubler for the table, or uh, Gear Per Orrery, which it's kind of like Rites of Flourishing. Everybody gets to play a dif- uh, an extra land during their turns. And then at the beginning of their uh, upkeep, if they have no cards in hand, they draw three cards. What do you guys think about this category? Not so much drawing cards, but more... Uh, getting man on the battlefield and, and really developing the board for everyone. Uh, Dana, why do you think you know these cards are also played at you know a pretty high percentage in group hug decks? 
Well, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's it's providing you with resources for free um, to let you do bigger, splashier things in a game than you maybe normally could at that speed. So it's again, it's it's a thing that is either fun or perceived as fun as you're trying to manipulate people to do a certain thing. What I do find most interesting about this this sequence of cards is a lot of them are actually ones that see play outside of just a group hug environment. Like for the most part, you're not seeing Temple Bell in anyone's deck that they're just running as a draw outlet, or you're not for the most part seeing people using Holy Mind for that purpose. You do see Collective Voyage show up in decks where Group Hug isn't the goal. You know, if you're playing some kind of a landfall deck, Collective Voyage is a really efficient way to get a ton of landfall triggers. And maybe you don't care if anyone else gets a bunch of free lands because when you cast Collective Voyage, your plan is just to win the game. The same is kind of true with Template Discovery. It's a card that people sometimes legitimately run as a ramp spell because if they're in a deck that is running Guy's Cradle and is running you know, a Nykthos in a deck with heavy amounts of permanence, maybe their their belief is the lands they're going to get are going to more often than not be more valuable than what you get. Because templates, you put that land straight into play and it can get any land. So even if no one takes your attempt, it's still a really useful card. Dictated Karametra, you can flash that in before your turn starts and surprise, all of a sudden have double mana for you to make your big game-winning play. Gear Per Ori, Let's you get that additional land drop. Same thing in some kind of a landfall deck. So these are all cards. This next grouping of cards are not only group hug friendly, but they're cards that are friendly to playing a non-group hug style of deck. What's also fun about them is that they, like mana is the resource by which we like can play our stuff. So mana sets the tempo. If everyone's playing one land a turn, then the game will, you know, progress at exactly that speed. Group hug its main method of destabilization towards everyone's usual strategy is precisely to, to advance the number of resources that everyone has in play because my ultimate strategy is to take advantage of not just my own resources, but also my opponent's resources. It escalates the game so that people are playing their huge haymakers way earlier than they normally would because then I'll cast Disrupt Decorum and force people to attack each other. Or, you know, I'll, I'll help one person get ahead so that then I can cast Insurrection and use their stuff too. So like that advancement of resources sets a, the tempo of, of the game at a different rate than everyone else is used to and which only I am accustomed to. So then that's what helps me take advantage of that situation. When everyone else is still kind of scrambling to get to their feet, I've already figured out what my game plan will be. And I've done that because I've changed the tempo of the game and I know that I'll be able to use in some way the, uh, the things that they eventually you know, p- build up once they've figured out what they're going to do. Yeah, and to, to combine both of your points, I know in my Angry Omnath deck, uh, the two cards Dana focused on, Tempt with Discovery and Collective Voyage, I play both of those because, sure, everyone else might be getting a lander or however many they, they would get with Collective Voyage, but I'm also getting a 5-5 five five for every land that they're getting. Uh, so I'm kind of doubling down on that value. So yeah, to both of your points, really, you know, I'm, I'm able to use those resources that everyone is getting only I'm getting double the value they are. So it kind of makes that three to one ratio, you know, that, that you talked about, Dana. I have three opponents, so I'm giving out three lands, but it, I'm doubling down. So really it's not a three to one ratio. It's almost even, uh, if not, I'm pulling ahead because I have, you know, those token generators, stuff like that with Omnath. Right. And that's one of the inherent flaws in playing some of these cards, like a Veteran Explorer or a Dictative Karametra. You're spending a card slot and a game action on playing something that benefits everyone equally, which means that technically you're down a card 
and everyone's been affected exactly the same way, which means that you have to take extra advantage of it if you actually want it to mean more. Sure. So we're going to move on to a different category. So we're going to move down into the top card section now. And these are some more interesting cards that I think aren't actively giving your opponents any sort of advantage. Um, so I think Dana might be a little more on board with this category of cards, but they're kind of a, I don't want to say political because you guys know how much I hate that <laughs> that word, but they, they kind of put the decisions in your opponents, put, you know, put the ball in their court, if you will. So we're going to have cards like Silvala Explorer Returned, which is legendary creature that has that parlay ability. There's a lot of text on it, but basically everybody can flip over the top card of their library. Everybody gets to draw it eventually, but then you get some sort of resources after that, whether it's gaining life or adding mana to your mana pool. You have Heartwood Storyteller, which is a, a tree folk that it reads whenever a player casts a non-creature spell, each of that player's opponents, so not just all the opponents at the table, but that player's opponents that cast a spell may draw a card. And then you also have Edric Spymaster of Tress, which is that creature that has quite the reputation. 2-2 two, two, that reads, uh, whenever a creature deals combat damage to any one of your opponents, its controller may draw a card. So it kind of encourages people to attack other people at the table, that threat deflection that jo Joey kind of talked about. What do you guys think about this category of kind of the, I'll say it, political, quote unquote, uh, type of cards in group hug decks? Oh, they're incredibly necessary because I have to force my opponents to start thinking of each other as enemies rather than me. Sometimes, you know, someone playing their Ural deck or their Rafik deck or some big Ur-Dragon stompy stuff, sometimes that's not enough to convince everyone that uh, I'm not a threat. And so these are things that help give them an extra push because the, uh, the person who's clearly in the lead gets even farther in the lead. And so then everyone has to work together to stop them. And so then that means that they're diverting their attention away from me. I just happen to have used some cards that encourage that strategy completely by accident. So that, that allows for a bit of social dynamic that is really fun to play with. Fair. Dana, what do you think of them? I think these are probably the most chaotic of the cards. Um, like Hollow Mind comes down, there's, there's not... It is what it is. Everyone gets an extra card, and I've already explained why I don't why I don't like that. Most of these cards, though, add in that element where someone's bad decision making really affects you. Edric being the prime example. There's so many times people take that Edric candy and make the terrible decision when you know clearly you need to hit that guy's planeswalker. No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw those two Edric cards. Like so many of so many of the cards on this list are ones that bait people into giving into their worst instincts and screwing up the game um, by making those terrible plays. I, so I like it, that it, term, Edric Candy. That that was well done. Oh, he's he's a he's a pusher. He's a drug dealer from an '80s movie. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far, but I do agree with the rest of your your assessment that yeah. It, that's kind of where I think maybe your your opinion of it encourages bad deck decisions, or not really deck decisions, but play decisions. You're attacking the wrong person because of Edric, because, yeah, he did dangle that candy and you took the bait. So I, I think that's a very good good way to describe it. Here, here's what I kind of want to point out, though. Uh, like, on, on a previous challenge, the stats, one of you named Berserk as a card that they think should see more play because Berserk is a really fun and also chaotic card that can mess with the dynamics of the game because it can buff up someone else's creature. And if they're attacking another opponent, you've just done a ton of damage to that opponent who's being attacked and you've also destroyed the creature because that's what Berserk also does. It's really fun multiplayer, kind of crazy stuff. And so like 
It's weird to me that y'all will like say, ooh, that's a fun card. But then when we see the kind of chaotic cards in group hug, Dan is like, no. Well, can you blame him is the question. I've just, I just want to hear his response to that. Dana, do you um, have a response? Not, not really. I, I understand Joey's reasoning and his logic, but I don't want that in my game. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I don't want that in my magic game. I, I don't want to deal with that. Well, at least you put it out there. You, you are very honest. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up the, the top card section with two uh, newer additions, but two that I think really add to that, that chaos aspect that we both are talking about. We're going to talk about Fractured Identity and Piers Whim, which is one that we all on our Battle Bond review thought was fairly interesting. So those cards, I'll read them. So Fractured Identity, three, a white and a blue. Exile, target non-land permanent. Each player, other than its controller, creates a token that's a copy of it. And then we also have Piers Whim, which is three and a green for a sorcery. For each player, choose friend or foe. Each friend searches their library for a land card, puts it on the battlefield tapped, then shuffles their library. And for each foe, sacrifices an artifact or enchantment they control. Why do these cards, two fairly chaotic cards, show up so much both in 50% of group hug decks? The, the art of group hug isn't just subversive distraction. There, there are people maybe a bit more adept at it than me who actively look for social bonds within a multiplayer game. I, I tend to prefer that mine be a bit more like one-off stuff, like, oh, I'll help you out with my Chaos Warp this one time so that you don't die type of things. But some folks do prefer the strategy like Piers Whim, where you're giving other people more resources. You're literally giving them a land. And, and that can help create a unified front if the rest of the table has deemed one particular person to, to be a problem, something like Piers Whim or Fractured Identity can help restrain that person and give you teammates at the same time. Now, now, so I'm confused, though. Piers Whim just destroys everyone else's stuff and it gives you a land. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no option on there as far as I can tell. It's just I get a free <laughs> land and you lose a thing. Piers Whim lets you choose friends and Dana's just Man, selfish I, I don't because know he's about his that. only friend. I mean, okay, I mean, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. I'm just not saying that. <laughs> Dana just likes, you know, making lots of foes. That's all. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, all, sometimes... I'm already eyeballing the guys in the next pod I'm going to play next game. That, that's that's <laughs> how I'm viewing my enemies. And, and that's, that's like a very fair, like I have that same attitude in many of my other decks. Like everyone's my enemy and I should treat it that way. And social bonds are not something that I actively pursue in those games. It is the case though in like this particular style of deck, that I will occasionally make those bonds. I will, like, everyone's got a moment. That, Matt, that's why you like the card play of the game so much, because it allows you to team up with someone when you acknowledge a mutual threat. And that's what these cards can help you do. I, I think they make for a really interesting side-by-side comparison, at least in terms of, of myself, because Piers Wim is a card I like a lot. Um, and we've talked before about about my like of having cards with a cards with a high seal with a high floor. In Piers Whim is that like the worst case scenario for Piers Whim is I get to get any land card I want from my deck and put it into play tapped, even if nobody loses anything else for four mana. That's not terrible. And odds are people are going to lose stuff. So so the variables on that I can control. I I love Piers Whim versus Fracture Identity. You have no idea what that's going to be. Like what target you're going to have and what that effect is going to be until you're in the moment. So it's it's a card I dislike because I just I, I don't want sure. that in my deck when I don't know what could possibly happen or what use I'm going to have for it. So if if nothing else, I just find that fascinating that the two cards we're bumping on here are one that I love a lot and one that I would never consider for a deck. You don't like you don't like fractured identity, huh? 
I don't. But I, to- I mean, it, it, it's absolutely like not the kind of thing I want to do in a game. So I don't think it's necessarily bad. It's just absolutely not my kind of card. Fair. Let, let, me put, let me put it this way. Dana is the curmudgeon at the table. And so when he says we should kill the group hug player first, these are the spells that I use to unify the table <laughs> against him. <laughs> that, that's a good way to describe it. Here's where you went wrong, Dana. Joe. You, you assumed I was giving everyone else an option. <laughs> See, now, 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 we're attacking the I'm arguments. I'm giving everyone else presents. <laughs> we're, we're attacking the arguments, not the person. We all know that Joey's the necromancer and he's the bad person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm the mean yeah. man and Dana, yes, is the old one, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, one last thing that I wanted to say is that it is one of the more fun aspects of the group hug dynamic as well, is that you're also the person who's most able to retaliate better than anyone because of the density of uh, like removal spells and other political tricks that you're hiding up your sleeve. So if someone like Dana comes for us, we're holding three removal spells and out of spite, I will use them on him before I die. Like, and that's a fun feeling too. All right. Fair enough. Well, let's move Fair on enough. Yeah. real quick to the top commanders for group hug decks. And really there's only two worth mentioning. We have the, the purple hippo themselves. I'm not really sure him or herself. But themselves, Felda Griff, uh, one in, in Bant Colors, basically get to give everybody some gifts for doing something with Felda Griff. There's a lot of text on there. And then finally, we have uh, Caneo Centira Miletus, uh, the no black four color commander, famously one of the, the top commanders of all time. And there's not a lot else worth mentioning because those are the two kind of default according to the site. What do you guys think about those commanders? Why are they so conducive to the group hug uh, direction with decks? I think they're very interesting. Again, it's a nice comparison side by side because I think you have two very different um, style decks. You have K&T, which you said that's what you play for your group hug, Joey. And I think mm-hmm. that's the commander that lends itself to what Joey's trying to do, where he's trying to win via convincing people he's not really trying to win. Whereas I think Fendelgriff is the is the one you're running when you're just like, ah, let's have a good time and see what crazy stuff happens. And everyone gets a car. It's it's that that that's the one Oprah runs. Oprah plays Fennel. Holy, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, really I, I actually played a really mean Feldegrift deck once because they had Suture Priest and they just made infinite mana and gave everybody infinite creatures and then died to Suture Priest. Ah, I like that. That's clever. That that and that's actually so. That's funny that you mentioned that. That's one of my win conditions in my Kineos and Tira deck is the card Insight Rebellion, which does sort of a Rakdos charm like effect where people are dealt damage equal to the number of creatures they control. Mm. And so something like Feldegriff. I mean, what I use in my deck is something more like Exotic Orchard. I'm secretly giving one person a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of creatures with my Exotic Orchard, and then I'll hurt them with them. Um, and Feldegriff, I think, really represents that style of strategy where you like tangibly pick one person that you're going to help out or maybe several people that you're going to help out, and then you'll use those resources against them, whereas Kaneos and Tiro is a lot more sly with it. What's really fascinating to me, though, is that these top commanders, like they, the numbers on these are crazy. So when you look at the top commanders on the group hug page, you see that Feldegriff's got 221 group hug dedicated decks, and Kaneos and Tiro has 194 specific uh, group hug decks. It like registers based on the types of cards that affect each player. That's what the data is pulling from there. Uh, but then after that, you've got Corona False God at 25 decks and Maelstrom Wanderer at 18 decks. And that's like, that's quite a steep drop off. That is a massive drop off, yes. And and it's just because of the way that EDH Rec is actually pulling the data here because it's trying to find, to establish something as a quote group hug deck, it's trying to find cards that affect all players. And I think this might actually be, not to throw shade at EDH Rec, but this might not necessarily 
completely grasp like what an accurate depiction of group hug is. Obviously, Kaneos and Tiro and Feldegriff are very classic group hug decks. But the, uh, the the threshold for calling something group hug, I think, extends a little bit farther than just the 194 Kaneos and Tiro decks that we see here. And and further down the list, we've got stuff like Silvala Explorer Returned. She's the one who parlays, and that's also a really classic, a, a very good group hug strategy itself. It's only registering as 12 de- dedicated group hug decks. Uh, Zedra the Great Hearted is only showing, it's registering as only nine group hug decks, but I've definitely seen folks that are running a dedicated Zedru group hug strategy. So just that that's one of those things i think there might be just kind of a, a thing to be aware of here sometimes the way that we can categorize stuff on EDHREC here by like acknowledging there are specific types of cards that help all players like rights of flourishing and like howling mine um and that's a really tough like group hug itself is so ephemeral this is really what i guess i'm trying to get at like i we're trying to keep people on their toes i'm constantly switching stuff in my deck all the time because it, you're not supposed to necessarily know what my win strategy is. I'm doing things that you think are good for you that are actually bad for you. And that also means that the data is tough to collect on that specific strategy too. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and I think it's also such a, uh, a seldom seen archetype, at least compared to how often people talk about it. Like, There's just not that many group hug decks in the list considering how often people talk about group hug versus... You know, minus one, minus one counters is very rarely a theme anyone talks about. And there's more minus one counter decks on EDHREC than there are group hug decks. The The reputation of the archetype far outstrips the actual numbers of decks out there, which is, number one, kind of curious. But number two, I, I wonder if maybe some of these decks popping up here as well aren't even necessarily group hug decks. They just kind of look that way by virtue of the cards they're running. So I think it goes both ways. I think there's probably a few more of those decks out there that aren't showing up as group hug decks, maybe because the decisions are making in builds. And then there's some that are maybe showing up as group hug decks that probably really aren't. Right. The, the website can easily capture like, oh, this many cards that say the phrase minus one, minus one counter are in this deck. Ergo, I'll categorize it as a minus one, minus one counter deck on the website. But I mean, half of what we've been talking about tonight is that group hug can be very social. There are a lot of like the way that you spend your removal spells is, is itself an aspect of group hug. I am helping people with my removal spells. That's a weird dynamic. And it's basically impossible for a, a program to, to collect that information when it's literally social. So that's just a thing to keep in mind when you're looking at, at, at the page, I guess. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, we've had some really good discussion. Good back and forth. Good debate. I won't declare a winner quite yet. But let's move on. Let's wrap up before we go home. Uh, let's go on to challenge stats. Dana, would you kick us off with the challenge stats section of the episode? I certainly will. We talked about one tempt card, Temp with Discovery, but the one I want to challenge the stats on is Tempt with Vengeance. It's mm. in 4,800 decks on EDH Rec, and it costs X and red for a sorcery, has tempting offer, put X 1-1 red elemental creature tokens with haste onto the battlefield. Each opponent may then do the same, and if they do, then you put that many in place. So if you cast, you know, attempt where X is 10, you make 10 elementals. If someone else chooses to make 10 themselves, then you get 10 more, et cetera, et cetera. It sees a lot of play for the most part in Perforos kind of decks where you don't care if anyone makes creatures. All you care about is putting the bodies in the field to deal damage to everybody. But it's also really great in decks like Angry Omnath, where you know those are, in fact, elementals. And oftentimes, Angry Omnath decks have sack outlets, so... If you can drop, you know, six or eight or ten 
elementals, even if no one takes your tempt, then you just drop them all through uh, Ajna's altar and blow up somebody. It's a really solid card there. But in just in, you know, in aggro decks in general, there's a lot of times being able to drop those 1-1 elementals with haste lets you kill somebody and the elemental somebody else gets might not be relevant to you because you have then put blockers in place to deal with them on the crackback. So it's just a really, really good card that's almost a win condition in plenty of different decks. And I'm genuinely surprised it's only in less than 5,000 builds. That's still a lot of decks, but that's not as many, I don't think, as there are decks that could genuinely use that card. Yeah, combined with something like shared animosity, it's disgusting. Right, yeah. Yeah, and those tokens have haste too, so they just they come in and swing. Even You, you mentioned Perforos decks. They just want to get those on the on the battlefield, just get those triggers out of them, but they can still attack too, and they're, you know, they're not insignificant bodies. They have haste, and the haste becomes useless for the most part for your opponent, so it's giving you bodies with haste. Well, I mean, it's giving them to your opponents too, but they can't take advantage of it because it's not their turn. So it's also kind of a little weird asymmetrical effect people oftentimes forget about. Yeah, nice. Good pick. Well, I'll go next. I have a card that I actually uh, started playing a little bit. I was kind of eh, lukewarm on it when I first saw it, first played it a couple times. But I found a deck for it uh, in the new Niv-Mizzet Perrin deck that I just finished. Uh, played a couple games with it last week, and I was really impressed with a card, Secrets of the Golden City. Uh, it's one and two blue. Uh, and it's a sorcery that has Ascend, so uh, if there are 10 or more permanents that on the battlefield for you, you get the city's blessing for the rest of the game. And it reads, draw two cards. If you have the city's blessing, draw three cards instead. Just a quick, simple, you know, draw spell. Uh, for three mana, you're drawing three cards, and we talk about, you know, read the bones, sign in blood, some of those black cards that get you two. Uh, in commander games, a lot of the times, you're going to have 10 permanents, whether it's lands, whether it's artifacts, even in blue-red, you're ramping some sort of way. It's not hard in Commander games to, to get the City's Blessing at all. This card currently is only seeing play in 166 decks. And I know there are much more efficient draw spells. You can draw, you know, X with whatever you want, with Sphinx's Rev or Prosperity, cards like that. Um, but just for a nice, quick, you know, bump, reload the hand if you can't draw in any action. I was really impressed with that, actually. Uh, especially the Niv, where you, you know, get to ping somebody for every card you draw. Currently, the most played commander that this card is seeing play in is Locust God and Admiral Beckett Brass. So it's only really recent cards. Uh, but with Locust God, it is not hard. It's especially not hard once you have Locust God out to have the City's Blessing. You're making tokens every turn. Uh, you go a little bit lower. You have uh, Joy Weatherlight Captain, which is all about getting permanence on the battlefield with your historic spells. Uh, you have Zur the Enchanter, who gets a lot of enchantments on the battlefield. So... I really like this is just, it's a very underrated draw spell. Is it the best? Not by any means, but I, I definitely think for as accessible as it is, you can pick these up for, you know, a, a dime from your LGS. I think it probably should be a really, really good budget card that people probably look to a little bit more than your, your ponders, your one-for-one -one draw spells. Everybody talks about brainstorm and opt and all those cantrips. But if you're just trying to get, you know, a total amount of cards into your hand, uh, Secrets of the Golden City, is, it's not hard to draw three cards with. I really dig that pick. The time that you need to fill your hand back up is when you've put your entire hand on the battlefield, which means you're going to hit the Ascension really easy. That's really clever. Yeah and, yeah, and just looking at all the top commanders for it, too, like, there's a lot of commanders. There's maybe one in the top commanders, which is Azor the Lawbringer, that might have any sort of problem getting those permanents on the battlefield. 
And we had talked, Matt, earlier in a show. I, I had tried Manifold Insights in my Talran deck that was also three mana, and it didn't quite work right there. And this looks like a much better fit for that deck, actually. It's the same CMC at three. I am almost always going to get three cards out of that consistently. And it's really, you know, it's not the problem in that deck where, like, someone can play around it. This, I think, is actually one I am going to try maybe in that slot. I was looking for something in the Manifold Insights slot. Anyway, I think this kind of really fits nicely. So I'm, I'm going to try it. That's a good call. Yeah. Well, thank you. Joey, would you like to, to bookend us, wrap it up with the uh, your challenge of stats? All right. That's that's um, not a good start. That's not we, a good So start. I told you, we're in the mood to fight. Uh, this week, I'm not challenging the stats on EDH rec. This week, I'm challenging the stats on the command zone. Ooh. So recently, the Command Zone podcast released an episode regarding a project they'd embarked upon to find out if factors like uh, playing a turn one soul ring or going first or playing specific colors affected your win percentage. Since we're a data website, statistics are naturally of interest, and I just felt like I kind of had to say something because those episodes of the Command Zone, they, they were frankly a little frustrating to listen to. I've listened to the first one. Um, by the time this episode releases, the other one will be out too. You know, just based on the, the scheduling at time that we're recording. Uh, but based on that first one, I had some problems with the data they acquired and the conclusions that they came to as a result. Uh, so they looked at about 313 games of Commander and noted various factors like who went first. And uh, they noted who won those games as well. And they concluded based on their findings that players who went first won about 30% of the time, I think. And that playing a turn one soul ring could actually decrease your win percentage lower than you would be expected to. Just based off of, you know, in a four-player four game, you can expect people to win about 25% of the time. And they found that playing a turn one soul ring could actually could sometimes make it that you are less than that. And I, I just have problems with these conclusions because in a scientific experiment, you have a variable that you change and you have control variables and games of commander have just so many permutations within the random assortment of 100 card decks. But even more than that, they also have random assortments of social implications based on the players piloting those decks. I mean, I've, I've been attacked by my friend because he was hungry before, like social implications <laughs> matter. <laughs> so collecting that type of data demands that you have an absolutely enormous sample size. And I do mean enormous. You can listen to a single episode of Limited Resources with uh, Marshall Sutcliffe and Luis Copperagas, and they'll discuss that predict predicting an accurate win percentage of X deck in the meta against Y deck in the meta, like to do that, the pros play hundreds of games and that's still not enough. You'd need literal thousands of games to have an accurate idea of win percentage. And that's just in 1v1. In, in this particular case with the command zone i just don't think that the 313 games are a, a big enough sample size and especially when they were considering the the turn one soul ring thing they tested less than 100 games wherein someone landed a turn one soul ring and noticed that slightly less than one quarter of the time that person lost i just that's not science and i don't think that it's useful to draw conclusions from that particular number they they drew data based on the the stuff that we have, like uh, things like MGG Mudsta videos, which are awesome, and their own Game Nights videos, which are awesome. Uh, they looked to that content that's out there to uh, like actually pull that data to observe that, and it was a really big undertaking, and that's awesome. But we don't have the thousands of of those videos that would be required, I think, and and that that sucks. We don't have the density of information necessary to actually draw statistics from. So some folks have said, well, it's the best we've got, and that's better than nothing. But I do disagree. I do, in fact, think that nothing is, in fact, better than drawing conclusions from unfinished data. Th there are statisticians on Reddit that were making comments that, like, mathematically, that data set does not provide a margin of error enough to prove necessarily the statements that were being made, uh, that, that, that those conclusions could necessarily be drawn 
um, they, they weren't like far enough based on the sample size. And, and there were like actual statisticians mathematically looking at it and how it wasn't necessarily large enough. And they claimed that you need probably 10 times the amount of data that would be required to start making uh, conclusions based on that. And, and that was important to me. So even our statistics here on EDHREC, we have to acknowledge, and I hope it's implicit when folks use the EDHREC as a resource, that this information only represents players who log their decks online on websites that EDHREC scrapes data from. And while I personally think that that still does an adequate, an adequate job of representing the player base, I acknowledge that there are gaps and that the data cannot be construed as wholly representative of the player base at large because there are tons of players who don't log their decks on those websites. And that's one of the reasons why we challenge stats every episode. So I know I'm talking a whole lot. I love the command zone guys, and I like the idea of this project. I just think they released the findings far before the study was completed. You need a sample size of a literal order of magnitude larger than the one that was analyzed before you can approach actionable data. And I was just a little too disappointed not to mention that. Yeah, there, there, there's a, a lot to process there. Sorry, I know I talked a whole lot. Actually, that, that last bit, like that last three sentences covers it, covers a lot of it at least. It just, I, I, I like the project a lot. Yeah, I think one thing that we want to make sure is very clear is we're not trying to detract away from the project by any means. That's not what we're trying to do or what Joey's trying to do. Um, I only watched a little bit of the episode, but I think it's just it's a massive undertaking. And we just want to make sure people know it. Joey, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the sentiment more is, uh, you know, we, we talk about how, how important it is to have a, a bigger spectrum of data. And maybe it, I think your point of contention is we don't really have anything to compare it against. And the sample size isn't really there. Is that kind of what you're getting at? It, it's really just that the sample size, I don't think, is indicative enough. And I mean, I guess, I guess this is what I'm doing nowadays, um, is just challenging other podcasts. So Magic Mike's had a top 10 Merfolk episode several weeks back where they said that Simic was the most popular color pair in Commander. But we've discussed that Simic is actually, surprise, it, it's actually the fifth most popular color pair and Golgari was the top dog, which we thought was just totally crazy. Um, and actually, I, I reached out to them to show them our data and... Aaron was, of course, like, yes, Dredge wins and gave us a lovely shout out on, on the following episode, which was awesome. But I guess it's just kind of funny. And I'm in the business of challenging not just the stats on EDHREC, but also other podcasts. So I do hope that I'm not coming off as contentious. It is an awesome project. And if anything, I would like to contribute more to it. And, and we still have another episode, correct? They, they said that it was going to be divided up into part or into two parts. And we've only seen the first one. So maybe, you know, in the second episode, which will be out by the time, you know, this episode release re releases. Um, maybe we'll have a, a good chance to process all that information that they were explaining on. And maybe we just don't have the whole picture. I think that might be a, a, a very real possibility there too. I, I think they also recommended explosive vegetation as a ramp spell. And I take issue with that. Oh, okay. Oh well, in that goodness. case, I, I'm done. Like the sample size matters. That's really all that I'm trying to say. And I'm not personally convinced that the sample size presented there was enough to to, to like point to those particular conclusions, even though they are fascinating conclusions and they give really good insights, assuming that those conclusions can be derived from those statistics. I think they do a good job there. I really do. They make amazing content. I'm not trying to make this aggressive or attacking or anything like that. It is just that I, I'm not sure that I trust that's, that, that data. And, and that's what I wanted to talk to. I want more data. That, that's what I, I would like to see. So I hope that people continue to put stuff out there so that we can get more data to actually find those conclusions. Well, Jimmy, Josh, DJ, don't mind joey's rhetoric uh <laughs> but no I, I i think it's it's a it's a good concern to have and i think that's a good encouragement just let's let's get as much data out there as possible it's a good tool for everyone um i think that that is a good takeaway at least so but with that let's uh let's wrap up let's let's get this episode under wraps and, and let's let's head home 
getting late. Guys, where can everybody find you on, on social medias? They can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. And you can hear me once a week on my other show, Commander Central. Joey? And you can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find my articles on EDHREC where I'm writing the Commander Showdown series. Apparently, I can't get enough of uh, commanders going against each other. So may- maybe I'll write my next one as me versus Dana. And, and exactly. Joey, Joey writes the Commander Face-Off featuring Nicolas Cage. It's, it's a very classic <laughs> series. But I am uh, Matt Morgan. You can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. Uh, our episode, as always, edited by Kenneth Schnorn, Mr. Ken Peddle. Find him on Twitter at Loader, L-O-A-D-3-R. Give him a follow. And actually, join in on his push-up challenge until the end of the new year. You can find a tweet about him, or well, not about him, that he posted. He'll probably pin it after this podcast episode. But join in on that if you want to join some MTG Fitness, a nice little project that he has running for everyone. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for coming out and listening. Thank you to my co-hosts. I'm not going to declare a winner in this great debate. It was... Oh, I won. Uh, are you sure? Because I, I, I gave the biggest hug of them all. Well, <laughs> well that, that's yet to be seen. I have not received any hug. Maybe we'll have to fulfill that sometime. But listeners, what do you think? Let us know on Twitter. Follow the podcast at EDH RecCast. Uh, let us know what you guys thought. Who won? Dana being very anti-group hug. And Joey maybe being a little too touchy-feely. Who knows? <laughs> Let us know on Twitter who won. We will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for coming out and listening to us, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, I'm not picking it up now. Okay, I, I was just noticing it, so I didn't know if there was like if you were scratching your chin or or twirling your mustache or something. Well, I don't have a mustache to twirl. Doesn't mean that you're not evil. You're no anyway, hipster. sorry. You're no hipster. No, I'm. The, I would be the worst hipster ever. Follow me, girl.